You're now listening to episode 134 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli join here with Anton Matley, CEO of Peak Financing. Over the last 15 years, Anton has been advising family offices, high net worth individuals, as well as private investment funds and facilitating their direct investments in commercial real estate assets across Europe and the United States, including several hundred million dollars in multifamily developments and acquisitions. In today's episode, we discuss the commercial financing process for commercial and multifamily real estate, the impacts of COVID-19 on commercial financing, including interest rates, underwriting, which markets are suffering the most, tax strategies, and much more. Anton, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, Thomas. Uh, as you can hear from my accent, I'm uh, not originally from Texas, even though I've been living in Dallas now for 15 years. I was born in Switzerland. Uh, right after school, uh, I went into banking, worked in New York, in Tokyo, Hong Kong, and then I left banking and went out on my own and uh, have been working with uh, family offices, high net worth individuals uh, on direct investments, including commercial real estate. And as part of that, we also have our own firm that arranges financing for uh, commercial real estate uh, with a strong focus on multifamily properties. Nice, nice. Uh, so, you know, be, being so heavily in you know, the banking and financing space, um, you know, to cope pre-COVID, uh, we'll get into COVID in a second, but pre-COVID, you know, what is it, what is the, the correct process for financing, financing a commercial acquisition from A to Z? Yeah, I think the, the important part is particularly for someone who is new to this, uh, coming from residential, uh, as uh, some of your listeners undoubtedly know, right on the residential side, it's primarily your credit scores and uh, your debt to income ratio DTI that is driving the decision whether someone qualifies for a loan or not. Then you get approved and then as long as the appraisal uh, comes in as expected, then the deal is done. Uh, on the commercial side, uh, it's the complete opposite. Uh, you you never really know until very close before the closing whether the what you originally applied for will work out. There are dozens, if not hundreds plus uh, due diligence items that a lender has to go through. So as a result, it's really important when someone looks at the property that you reach out to us or a lender or another broker early on to really understand what is doable from a financing perspective for that property. Very important before you even submit an LOI, uh, because it's nothing is more embarrassing and also destroys someone's reputation if you submit an LOI and then you have to retrade because you made the wrong assumptions on various fronts, but including also the financing side. I have to say that's that's absolutely true. Um, from my experience in the multifamily side, I've talked to brokers, I've talked to other investors who talk poorly about other investors who have to go back and retrade. Um, it's it's something that you 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 don't want to do if you can avoid it. And you know uh, the best thing to do is try to be proactive uh, when you can. Um, 
before before we get a little bit into COVID, I just want to ask a quick question around, um, you know, is there anything materially different in the process for financing an office, retail, or industrial property? Um, or, or is, is the commercial space, you know, relatively, you know, the same process? The process is really very similar uh, within the commercial uh, space, whether it's a multifamily, whether it's retail office, uh, your net worth is relevant, your close, your liquidity uh, is important. And you also can structure a deal very similar, like a multifamily where you can partner up with multiple people. So that process is very similar when it comes to the underwriting. Obviously, uh, there are different criteria that drive the underwriting, but ultimately it's still the NOI that primarily drives the decision. And the question is how one gets to that NOI, particularly when it comes to retail and, and office space, because you, have, you do not have, let's say, 100 plus tenants or even 50 plus tenants like you would have typically in a multifamily. Uh, property, uh, you may have just five tenants, maybe just 10. So the evaluation of each individual tenant and the underlying leases are much more important. But ultimately, it's still the NOI that uh, drives the, the loan proceeds uh, and what terms can be offered. Got it. Yeah. And, and just it's, it's the same for, for larger multifamilies as well. Same, same type of process. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. All right. Has anything, you know, changed in the lending environment, um, you know, as a result, you know, or how has the lending environment changed, you know, as a result of COVID? Yeah, it certainly has changed uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, obviously, on the retail front office side, and particularly hospitality, it has been become a, a pretty big problem, particularly on the hospitality side where even today financing is, is pretty tricky unless you, you can come in with a significant amount of equity. Uh, on the multifamily side, that's only the, the, the area where it has been the easiest throughout the, the whole COVID uh, uh, period that we now have been experiencing. We have had in, in March of 2020, mid-March to maybe May, it was pretty tough for all the asset classes because the capital markets essentially when came to a complete halt. Nothing could be done for maybe a week or two. Uh, and then things slowly recovered. And on the multifamily side, things recovered really quickly, primarily thanks to the agencies, Fannie and Freddie, as well as HUD being readily available still to provide the financing, right? So lenders that are backed by Fannie and Freddie, they felt comfortable that they still can provide that financing because they knew that Fannie and Freddie and HUD uh, were still willing to back these deals. And on top of that, uh, obviously, there was a fear, as you probably know, uh, that collections would really drop significantly on the, uh, on the multifamily side. And the positive uh, experience by most owners, at least, was that the collections uh, actually performed much better than everyone feared. So once we moved into June and July, everyone realized, hey, this is not really impacting us at all or not too much. And as a result, the financing was right back where it was before. Also, when it came to, uh, to, to buyers and sellers, they started to talking again. 
And I would say uh, now we, we have had maybe a period of a month or two when it will turn briefly turned into a buyer's market. And we are right back to a seller's market since last uh, July and August. So I understand why it got tougher to get loans, especially during the beginning of the pandemic. But why would why would credit markets completely dry up for a period of two weeks? Like what causes that? Is it just, is it overreaction? Is it fear-based? Uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe maybe even how credit markets work and why, how something, how, how an entire market could dry up within a matter of 24 hours. Yes, uh, that's an excellent question. And it's it's really driven by market panic. Right, so uh, even though, uh, and we have had situations where even agency loans like Fannie and Freddie loans could not be funded by the lenders right during that particular week. And the reason for that is that everyone is essentially relies on someone else in the marketplace to fund them, right? So very few lenders have their own liquidity sitting in a bank account. So they have to rely on so-called warehouse uh, loans that provide the funding for a Fannie or a Freddie loan until they can sell that, that loan to Fannie and Freddie uh, maybe a few weeks later, and then Fannie and Freddie on top of that, then they securitize it and sell it as a bond in the marketplace, right? So it's for initially for the lenders, it was very problematic because they did not have access to the, uh, to, to the funding. And that, by the way, is also the, uh, the situation for some banks, also for bridge lenders. And uh, so that was the immediate uh, uh, concern that they just couldn't fund. But also from a uh, f- from an agency perspective, they essentially need to decide whether they are able to securitize these loans. Right? They do not really want to accumulate a massive amount of of a portfolio, and. With that, they had a hard time to really determine how they should now price these loans in order to being able to securitize it down the road. So until the market essentially was able to to determine what was really be reasonably possible to securitize these loans, no one was really willing to do it. Right. And that was on the agency side. On the bridge side, it was very similar. And we still uh, are experienced that situation where the liquidity in the marketplace is, is very limited, where essentially everyone came to a halt and said, well, we cannot do bridge loans because we do not know whether we can securitize it. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And, and I appreciate that. And it's funny because I, I, whenever I go get mortgages, I, I hear my mortgage broker say, our investors, our investors, our investors. Um, and so it's, it's good to sort of hear that, that explanation that just helps me understand like how it works and, and why, why an entire market would dry up. Yes. Uh, since- and that's actually happening even during the good times, right? So Fannie and Freddie, uh, they continuously evaluate where the pricing is going to be so that they've, uh, in the market, in the investment market, so that they can properly price their loans and uh, essentially communicate the spreads that the lenders need to charge so that everyone can make a profit and that Fannie and Freddie still can securitize these loans. Mm. 
And since we're on the topic of COVID, what, what sort of trends would you say are temporary and what sort of trends would you say are going to be permanent going forward? Yeah, so certainly temporary for the time being or these principal and interest requirements as uh, everyone now has, uh, has, has experienced that is, is active uh, as, a, as a buyer or has gone through a refinancing. We still have, depending on the leverage, if we are at the highest leverage, nine months for, for a Freddie conventional to 12 months for a Fannie conventional all the way up to 18 months for a small Fannie uh, balance loan. So that is temporary. And as we hopefully get the vaccinations rolled out and everyone feels more comfortable, that eventually will go away. Uh, I think what is not going to go away is the is the concern for uh, about smaller deals and newer buyers that do not have experience in, in commercial real estate. Uh, when we look back two years ago or a year ago, in Freddie small balance loans were a perfect entry tool for new buyers that did not have any experience. So as long as you had a third party management, you were able to get that financing in place that is gone and that's likely not going to come back. So as a buyer for a, for a multifamily property, more likely than not, unless you partner up with someone who has already had that experience, you will need a bank loan. And only after you have built up that experience, you can get into an agency loan. Got it. Thanks, Anton. So what about interest rates? Where do we expect to see those go over the coming years? Yeah, uh, so so everyone uh, solely has had the view that, and there are still a lot of people who have the view that interest rates will stay low for a long time, right? Uh, I personally do not really feel that that is going to be the case. Uh, I think we will have an opportunity right now over the next six months, maybe, when we still have a very rough environment from a political perspective, from a economic perspective, obviously also driven by COVID-19, uh, where there is a lot of uncertainty. But I, I believe that as we get the vaccinations under control, as we have also settled uh, a little bit more down on the political front, and that combined with definitely a commitment by, by the Biden administration to, uh, to support the economy, I, I believe that we will see a, an inflationary risk there. And as a result, the market, even if the inflationary elements is, are not really coming to play, the market will have that perception and that will have, a, I mean, in my view, a, an impact definitely on the, on the longer term rates, particularly the 10 year treasury, which is a key driver, as you know, uh, for, uh, for, for commercial real estate finance. So I definitely see that we will see rates increasing in that uh, 10 year range uh, rather than staying where they are today. Oh, interesting. How do you see uh, underwriting change changing going forward? Uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the underwriting is certainly more conservative the smaller the, uh, the deals are, right? So when we look at where Fannie and Freddie have had uh, the biggest problems, uh, it was mostly in the sub-6 million uh, segment. And within that, it's more so 
in the 1 million to 2 million to maybe 3 million, right? So that they clearly realize that the smaller the deals, the higher the risk for a default, or even if, it, if it's uh, not necessarily a default, just the stress level that they identify early on in, in these deals. So I think these smaller deals will be underwritten in a, in a much more tighter fashion, whereas for the larger deals and for experienced operators, they will likely be back to where we were just uh, six or nine months ago, right? So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sorry, I, I guess I should have um, clarified and, and probably gone into it a little bit more. A, a lot of our, a lot of the listeners that we have are individual landlords, yes. uh, general partners of syndicates and general partners of real estate funds. So we do have people kind of, of all walks of life that listen to this podcast. And I guess my question is, you know, like, 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 let's say that I'm buying a single family home today. I am buying a single family home today. So, so I'm buying a single family rental right now. I'm putting 25% down. Um, do we expect that to change in the future at all? I mean, I mean, are, are the main terms of the loans going to remain the same or are we going to, we going to see like in a year from now, these banks getting these studies done and saying, here's how we need to mitigate against this risk in the future. And we need now 30% or 35%. I mean, talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, so we are not really active in the residential space. Uh, okay. However, I do not really see that the, it's going to change there. Uh, the reality is a, a 20% cushion, like with that 75 to 80% uh, leverage, uh, generally is a sufficient cushion. Right now, obviously, it can happen that uh, if, if you have a, a distressed market for a brief period, that everyone is, is pulling back. But I do not really see that that is, is going to change, particularly in the re- on the residential side. I think it's also that, uh, again, driven by, by the government, that affordability element that they are constantly uh, well aware of. I just cannot see that, they, that the restrictions will, would tighten up there. Obviously, private lenders, they may do it. I just do not see that the uh, Fannie and Freddie on the residential side are going to tighten that up. And I also don't believe it's going to happen on the, on the multifamily side, like for, for your syndicators that do uh, multifamily deals and all that. Uh, I believe that uh, there is a very strong focus to support affordable properties. And obviously, a lot of syndicators, as you know, they are buying B and C class properties that perfectly fit into that affordability segment. And they, in that segment, I just do not see that they are uh, that, that they will uh, pull back on the, on the leverage side. And kind of, kind of going down, I guess the same kind of, uh, the same kind of conversation, you know, same kind of uh, direction. You know, is there any particular, you know, markets that you've seen um, that lending has, that you know, that lenders have been that been pulling back on um, because of COVID, or it has, you know, or, or maybe certain markets that are seeing a lot more activity um, as a result of COVID. Yeah, so, so there's only some markets where everyone has been freaking out, uh, to call it uh, uh, that way, uh, like uh, New York City, 
like Chicago, like San Francisco, where you essentially have uh, everyone escaping the cities, right? Uh, so there, it's 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 very tough for for a lender really to understand where we are going to end up over the next uh, few months. Uh, so these are the markets where it's where it has been really tough from an underwriting perspective. Uh, however, on the positive side, only the suburban markets as well as the large cities that have, are more kind of sprawling cities. Obviously, Dallas Fort Worth is a perfect example. Austin, Phoenix, uh, Atlanta, many markets in Florida, uh, North Carolina. Uh, it's these markets have been doing really well, and financing has been uh, readily available there. Nice, nice. Thing. And I have to say though, I do say I, I do have to agree. You know, the the New York City market. I I live uh, in the suburbs of New York City right now. Um, used to live in in New York, and a lot of my uh, friends are telling me now is the time to move back <laughs> to New York because uh, the rents are really low. Properties are are seeing a downturn, uh, more of a, a suppressed market. Meanwhile, the suburbs around the city, and I match like this in other major cities, are are really taking off that the property values are appreciating significantly and there's almost no supply on the market um, as a result of everybody fleeing these cities. And it's, it's really, it's really sad to see what's, what's going on, but I mean, the cities themselves aren't making, aren't helping themselves out. I mean, we see a lot of, uh, we see a lot of shutdowns, like everything's shut down in the New York city. So why would anybody want to live there? So whatever. Yes, uh, sure. Right. The, the question is where where are the rents going to end up? Right. Where is the bottom? And as a result, also where do we see the prices uh, ultimately uh, bottoming out? I I feel that certainly for opportunistic buyers that have the cash, uh, New York City and all the major cities, I think are buying opportunities, similar also on the hospitality side, right? Because it's financing is essentially extremely difficult uh, to, to obtain. So if someone has the cash position, uh, even though today it looks very bleak, I do not really feel that, that these cities now just uh, uh, are going into a, a, a decade-long downturn, right? So reality is when we look back over a year of every single downturn we have gone through, everyone feels that the, the, the end of the world is near. And then a few years later, everyone is, is, is back to normal, right? So I, uh, I do not really feel that uh, major cities that are very attractive, uh, like a New York City is going to suffer uh, for for the long term. It's just that uh, maybe for a year or two or three years, they will go through a tough time. We do have to talk about tax strategies because we are the Real Estate CPA podcast. Um, you know, working with as many investors as you as you have over the years, uh, what are some common uh, tax strategies you see real estate investors employing to you know minimize their tax liability? Yes. Uh, Obviously, uh, over the last few years, the bonus depreciation was uh, was a welcome addition to the to the strategies, right? So everyone uh, was uh, was really excited about that. Uh, but with with every 
decent CPA. I hope everyone took advantage of, of that, right? So it's not really a strategy. It's hopefully just taking advantage of what is readily available. Uh, but I would say uh, where I have seen more and more where, where uh, investors have been spending additional money was on the cost segregation side. Uh, to really making sure that they that they optimize uh, their depreciation rather than just uh, going with the standard depreciation. So I would say that is probably the the top item that we have seen more and more investors are paying attention to. And for those folks listening that are not sure what a cost segregation study is or what bonus depreciation is, I'll give you the one minute rundown. So a, when you buy a property, let's say you buy a $100,000 property, or let's call it a million dollar property so that we get everybody in between. By a million dollar property, it's a, it's a 20 unit apartment complex. When you buy a million dollar property, you, you buy the building and you buy everything that makes up the building, right? So you buy all the components that make up the building, all the toilets, the appliances, the carpet, the doors, the windows, the roofs, all of that, all of those components have value. If you don't do a cost segregation study, then what you do on your tax returns is you would report the $1 million minus the cost of land and you would depreciate that over 27 and a half years. So long time to depreciate this cost. Depreciation is a phantom expense. You get to claim it every single year. You don't have to pay more money every single year. You just get to claim it because you bought the asset and you're just writing a little bit of it off every single year. What a cost segregation study does is it says, well, the building net of land, that, 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 that's great that we depreciated over 27 and a half years, but some of the components inside of that building won't last that long. Some are going to last five years, some will last seven, and some will last 15 years. Those are statutory buckets. So we can argue that some will last two and one and, and eight, but we don't get those options. Five, seven, and 15 years. So a cost segregation study is simply the practice of saying we bought this million dollar building, but we have to go and take that million dollar value and we have to go and allocate it to the components within the property that are five-year components, seven-year components, and 15-year components. So after the after cost segregation study is done, you have the 27 and a half year building, and that might be worth $600,000. Then you have the five-year property, the seven-year property, and the 15-year property listed out separately. And all of that might amount to $300,000. So our $300,000, five, seven, 15-year property, and then our building was 600K total of 900,000. What's the remaining 100K? It's land. So a cost segregation study simply goes and allocates value to those different buckets. And then what Anton was mentioning with bonus depreciation, thanks to the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we now have 100% bonus depreciation where you can 100% expense via depreciation any component with useful life of less than 20 years. So on this example, I allocate value of $300,000 to five, seven, and 15 year property. Well, what does five, seven, and 15 year property all have in common? Their useful life is less than 20 years. So now I can immediately expense $300,000 in the first year, in the year of acquisition or the year that I place the property into service. And that's going to create a huge tax loss. Bonus depreciation will be phased out. I believe starting in 2023, uh, goes down to 80% and then it's phased out 20% all the way until 20% uh, each year until 2027. So it is something that you want to take advantage of this year and next year. It's definitely something you want to take advantage of. Or if you're investing in syndicates, you want to ask them, what are you doing? And if you're a syndicator, if you're if you're a general sponsor of a syndicate or a fund, and we get questions like, well, my I don't know if my partners, my limited partners can take advantage of this. Doesn't matter. You're the steward of their funds. You got to act, act in the best interest of them at all times. If one person can benefit, then it's probably worth worth doing. So go and get the caustic study done every single time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Definitely something you want to take advantage of. Yeah, definitely. 
I'm uh, I, I was amazed how many uh, deal sponsors didn't do it. Uh, now I think the the news is out, and now more and more are are actually getting the pressure also from their investors. Right, Brandon, you you brought up a great point. Just uh, it's not up to you as a deal sponsor to decide what you think is good for the passive investors. Right, you just do not know their overall investment environment. Right. Uh, and the reality is, from what we have seen, the majority of passive investors are going to benefit from this. Right. Because if any of those passive investors work with our team, <laughs> you best believe that we're setting the rest of their portfolio up to benefit from their $100,000 investment into your syndicate. So you better be cost second for any of our clients. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and along those lines, I'll just, I'll just point out real quick why it's very important, why passive losses are still very beneficial to investors and why I wish I had some last year. And I really mean that. Um, so um, it, basically, when you sell a property, you're going to hopefully have a gain, assuming everything went well. That gain's taxable for the most part. And one of the ways you can mitigate that gain is by uh, using passive losses from either that investment or perhaps other investments you have. And to give you a real story, um, was part of a syndicate last year, we went ahead and sold the syndicate and have a gain on sale. And um, basically, I have no more passive losses to use against that gain because I used all my passive losses already. So uh, I'm going to have to pay tax on it now. And uh, I was unable to execute on my own advice. Um, but it was kind of because I was sitting on the sidelines uh, for part of the year. But anyway, the point is, if I had passive losses from another deal, from another investment, I could have used those to mitigate, to offset the gain on sale and not pay a tax bill on it. But uh, so, it, so it is very beneficial, whether or not you're an active investor or you're a passive investor, there can be uses, uses of those passive losses. So definitely want to take advantage of that while you can. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and Thomas, uh, you also pointed out, right? So you were sitting on the sidelines, as many others have done last year. And uh, I know of a number of investors that uh, that were waiting and waiting and waiting, right? And then at the last minute in in uh, September, October, decide, okay, now I need to find a deal I can invest in. And so they identified a couple of deals, but some of these deals that were they the sponsor attempted to close by year end, but then they were just uh, too close to year end and it had to be pushed out into January, which obviously then had the impact on now they it's it's it doesn't really help them for 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 the for the last year, right? So uh, I think it's important to think ahead, right? Don't don't wait until September, October hits, but uh, think well ahead of what what you potentially need and take advantage of it early on. And for all those deals that got pushed to January 1st or second week of January, now if you do a cost segregation study, you have to worry about the excess business loss limitations that are coming into play in 2021. Those cap your, your business losses, your, your business losses in excess of your business income. You now cap that 250K if you're married, or sorry, you're single, then 500K if you're married filing joint. So whereas previously I could have a W-2 and my spouse could be a real estate professional and she could generate a $600,000 loss from all the cost seg and we could take the full $600,000 against my W-2 income. Uh, going forward, if she generates that same $600,000, we're capped at $500,000 and the remaining 100 is carried forward. So for everybody that is buying deals in 2021, you definitely, if, if you're going to be getting some major losses from any sort of cost segregation studies, that needs to be top of mind, starting to plan for the excess business loss limitations. Yeah. 
great point. Sure. So, so Anton, as you know, before before we go ahead and, and wrap into the, you know the final question or two, is there anything you know that you're seeing that you know you would want that you think our listeners should be aware of uh, that that we haven't discussed so far today? Uh, I, I would say uh, really the important part is that that uh, that they are aware that they are continuously talk to the lenders and brokers of what is currently happening in the market, right? So just because you assume that something is still available and how things work uh, is not necessarily what is really the case. And as I mentioned, right, uh, when it comes to the Freddie SBL loan program, that was a great program until a year ago, and now it's not, right? And there are other changes that are constantly coming down the pipeline where they restrict something here, they restrict something there, and they may also loosen up some things, right? And it's really be important to, to be on the pulse of, of what is really happening. So whether you talk to us or someone else, it's really important that you that you are on top of where the market stands. Uh, I don't know, 100%, you know, we, you know, caught quick comment on that. We just did a webinar with a property management, uh, property management company, and we talked about how important it is to have the right people on your team. You know, you want to have the right attorneys on your team. You want to have the right CPAs on your team. You want to have the right lenders on your team. Uh, so you can go out and successfully, you know, build out your portfolio. And, uh, you know, it, the, you know, the one thing I learned in the multifamily industry, uh, in the multifamily business, and I learned this the hard way, <laughs> many years of spinning my wheels is that some businesses are a team, you know, it's a team approach, you can't do everything yourself. Uh, you need to make sure you have the right team around you to to go fo- move forward with your plan. So definitely a great point. And, and if, if our listeners wanted to get in contact with you, learn more about you, maybe, Maybe they'll you they'll you'll be part of their financing team. Um, how how could they go ahead and do that? Sure. Uh, so my email address is Anton at peakfinancing.com. So that's A N T O N at peakfinancing.com. I'm also very active on LinkedIn, on Facebook. So if you Google my name and uh, search it in Facebook and LinkedIn, I will likely pop up and uh, happy to connect. And if you have any questions, just reach out. Absolutely. So what we're going to go ahead and do for everybody who's listening, I'll go ahead and drop that in the show notes below. Um, and you, you can check that out. And, you know, and Anton definitely want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, and, you know, keeping us up to date on what's going on in the financing world. Yeah, thanks for having me on Thomas and Brandon. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.